0: All right. Um, I found myself in a very strange position this week. I've had two sermons to preach, and the entire week I've not been able to decide. In fact, I printed both of them out this morning and brought them with me. And um, I was leaning towards one or the, over the other, and I, I think I've made the right choice because otherwise Rachel's in a lot of trouble because I give her all the scriptures for one of the two sermons. Um, but um, uh, we're, we're looking at, this morning we're looking at Mary, and we've got a long passage to read about her Annunciation and the Magnificat. And uh, the first sermon, the one we're going to hear, is about Mary. And I felt like we needed, a, we needed to kind of talk about her today. The second sermon, which focuses on the Magnificat, is more about us and what kind of people we need to be to hear the gospel is good news. And you're not going to hear that this morning. So uh, whether that's a tease or whether you're relieved, you can decide um, sometime later. Um, but it was, a, it was a lengthy kind of process of choice, and I've decided within the hour what we're going to do. So... Um, <laughs> And in some ways, this is a choice of subversions. Um, How are, if we look at something like the Magnificat, it subverts our expectations of the good news. Because the truth of the matter is, the good news isn't good news to people in power. It's not good news to the wealthy. It's actually really bad news for them. And so you you can read the Magnificat this week and think about how maybe this isn't such good news for me because I'm in positions of power and wealth, and I need to judge myself. So you could just have that, let it float in your heads, and now we will turn to the other subversion, which is Mary. Let's read um, Luke uh, chapter 1, verses 26 through 56, and I I have a different Bible in my hand, so I'm going to read the one that's on the screen for us now. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of her greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. So there's two halves to this passage. The first is what's commonly called the Annunciation, where the angel Gabriel arrives and announces um, the birth of Jesus to Mary. The second half is the Magnificat, which is Mary's um, song, um, which is this, My Soul Magnifies. Uh, she, she expands upon these things, and that's why it's called that song. And we are going to look at the first part, and we're going to focus, of course, on this being a time of Advent. Um, and as I hope you're all familiar, Advent is a time of waiting. Traditionally in the church, this is a season of fasting. Um, Which seems counterintuitive because all of you have, maybe many of you have Advent calendars with chocolates in them, and you're not fasting. You're enjoying extra helpings for this season. Uh, But there was a traditional time of prayer and fasting and of waiting, and we echo the long patience of God's people for salvation. And there was a long period of salvation waiting, waiting for God to do something powerful among them. And so we're waiting for the arrival of the king. Uh, We're waiting for the Son of God. We're waiting for the compassionate shepherd. We're waiting for the one who is just in an unjust world. And this should cultivate real longing in our hearts uh, for God's justice to be present among us. And so the Annunciation we've read is the beginning. It's kind of like the first domino that leads to our salvation in Christ. This is just Mary says yes, and and now there's this massive flow of things that come out of it. It's a very exciting passage in that way. So there are things that are expected and unexpected in this passage. So for uh, Mary and the Jews of her time, there was a real expectation that an earthly king would arrive, uh, who they would refer to as the Messiah, and he would, regso- he would rescue Israel from their exile that was kind of ongoing. I mean, Israel's back in the land, but there's a pagan king in charge, and the Romans are there, and all sorts of things are wrong, and they're waiting for someone to make things right. They feel um, how wrong it is at this time, and they're waiting for that, and so there's a clear expectation. But there's something unexpected as well. They're not expecting God himself to show up in human flesh. This is, not, this, is, this is not something that anybody in the world is expecting at this time. And so here's something very unexpected that's about to happen. And they're not expecting him to save not only Israel, but also the whole world. Uh, Jesus' mission is, is much bigger than anyone had in mind at this time. And that's the, those are the things we actually pause to remember at Christmas time. And so as you hear little Christmas songs, try to ignore the trite, stupid ones. Um, just if you could push mute on all Paul McCartney Christmas songs for the rest of your life, please do. Uh, But when you hear some of the carols and the things coming through, um, come thou long expected Jesus, oh, that's what we're waiting for, waiting for the justice of God to arrive. There's really good things, and we want to hold on to those. So let's look briefly at verses um, 46 through 48 again. All right, and Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, and especially verse 48 for he has looked on the humble state of his servant for behold from now on all generations will call me blessed now i think this is a verse that many protestants struggle with what does it mean for protestants to call mary blessed how do we honor mary and this is i mean if this is if this is scripture and it is scripture <laughs> And if Mary speaks the truth, and I want to say that, yes, she's speaking the truth here, then there is some obligation on our part to rise up and call her blessed. And yet, there is such confusion about the figure and person of Mary that we, I think there are some checks um, in terms of handling this. Now, I don't know how many of you come from... Uh, from Catholic uh, backgrounds. I talked to Toby on this one on Friday. He says, so I'm a recovering Catholic, and I thought that was kind of funny. And maybe, <laughs> maybe you would or would not describe yourself that way, and I don't know how much you own a Catholic heritage, but uh, for those of you who have that heritage, there's, there's, there's a disjunction between Protestantism and Catholicism in terms of how we approach the figure of Mary. So I want to talk today about how we speak and revere Mary with honor, but I want to begin by pulling out some of the confusion about Mary. So, um, there is lots of confusion. I don't know if you know this, but many Muslims believe the Christian Trinity is God the Father, Mary the Mother, and Jesus the Son. Um, That her prominence in worship has led to a belief that she's just the third member of the Trinity. Um, And this is a very difficult, uh, we have to clarify some of these things. her images. if you were an alien and you descended to the earth and you entered um, certain churches in the world, you would also think that Mary was the one we worship. You would conclude, just from the imagery, um, there is a formal theology in the Catholic Church to make Mary uh, what is called a co-redemptrix with Christ, so that Mary has effective power to cause your salvation in the same way that Christ does. Um, this is an active movement. I don't think it's been quite formalized yet. Uh, and so there's very real movements to treat Mary as a kind of like also Jesus, or Jesus 2.0, or maybe Jesus is the 2.0 of Mary's 1.0. I don't know how that works, given the whole birth thing. But uh, there's, some very strange, there's some very strange things going on there. Now, I think there are, I think there are some very reasonable explanations for some of these things. Um, if you look at um, Judeo-Christian religion, uh, you will notice that there is a very um, marked absence of the feminine. Have you noticed this? That there's something simply missing in the feminine. Um, I heard uh, Philip Jenkins, who's a, a historian of religion, several years ago. I heard him give a lecture, and he talked about how Christianity is enculturated in um, in second and third world countries, and in almost every um, every third world nation or two thirds world nation, you want to call it, however you want to phrase it. Um, in almost every one, there is an indigenization of Mary. So you get the Virgin of Guadalupe, Mexico. So she's Mary envisioned as. A local image Um, and you get these kinds of patterns of Mary and what it is it seems to be the case is that where Christianity has failed to acknowledge its kind of feminine role the role of Mary has risen up to take that place Um, and there's something very reasonable about that but um, it points maybe to some flaws in our teaching uh, which need to be addressed and I'm going to come to those things in just a moment. So in a moment, I'm going to talk very specifically about why Mary deserves our honor, but first things, I want to highlight four things that Mary is not. So four negatives, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't mean to be negative, but we have, to, we have to be clear about some of these things. So four things Mary is not. Uh, number one, Mary is not the queen of heaven. She's not queen of heaven. She doesn't sit on a throne as queen of the heavens. Uh, this, this leads one of the things that leads to some of the Muslim confusion. Um, there is also some historic thinking that the mother of the king is easier to access than the king, right? Like the king's too powerful and big, but if I can get to his mom, then she'll make things happen. And some of you, some of you, your moms are the way to make things happen in your life. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so this is this is very reasonable and natural. <laughs> To conclude these things. It's interesting, we see this with, uh, with stories like Solomon and Bathsheba. People try to go through Bathsheba to get to Solomon, and this is an image that's used. Well, uh, Bathsheba's easier to get to than Solomon, so we'll just go to Mary, and she's kind of easier to sidle up against and say, hey, would you talk to your son Jesus for me? And, uh, and then she's supposed to make things happen. However, uh, we do believe that God is king, but who is God's bride? Well, it's pretty clear. In the Old Testament, God's bride is Israel. Let's look at Isaiah 54 and verse 5 which says, ta-da, for your Maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. Um, I don't know if you've looked at the story of the Bible this way before, but it's kind of one giant marriage, where God calls Israel, and then he brokers a marriage agreement with them at, the, at Sinai, it's called the Ten Commandments, and they agree to honor him, and he agrees to, to love them, and then when they break their marriage agreement, it's called adultery. Um, and so it goes through, and then there's the fulfillment of the marriage with Jesus, and then there's a consummation at his return, and I'll let you think about whatever that might mean <laughs> at that point. But the, and the last story in the Bible is the great wedding feast of the Lamb. And so one way to look at the Bible story is to say it's one big marriage, and Israel is the bride. So who's the queen of heaven? It's God's people. Uh, in the New Testament, this gets focused to the church. We are called The bride of Christ. And this is also one of the reasons why I think we have a hard time with the feminine, because where's the feminine in the Christian religion? You and me. We are. And maybe and I don't want to I don't want to over psychologize this and so take this with a grain of salt and discard it at will. Um there's been a lot of dudes in charge of the church, and I think it's been hard for them to think of themselves as feminine. And to properly say that I am on the receiving end of God's power and in relation to God, I, I have a feminine identity as church. And that's been a little challenging. So, but if you don't like that, you can discard it because it's just Jeremy and you can forget it. All right. So number one, Mary's not queen of heaven. Number two, um, Mary was not a perpetual virgin. This could be shocking to some of you. Uh, Matthew 1, 24 and 25. Let's look at this briefly. When Joseph woke from his sleep, the angel has come and given him a dream about how he should take Mary, and it's cool. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not. That's Bible code, for he didn't have sex with her until she had given birth to a son. All right? So let's be clear. The word until means until. (laughs) I looked it up. And he called his name Jesus. Now, um, and so Luke here, I mean, Matthew here is, is not, he's really, let's be clear, he's really not talking about Joseph and Mary's sex life. What he's saying is that Joseph was not the father. That's his main point. But um, he's saying it, the until does mean until, all right? So there's another passage like it, Matthew 13, 54 and 55, um, where um, Jesus comes to his hometown, and he taught in their synagogues. He's in Nazareth, where his family is, and so that they were astonished and said, where does this man get his wisdom in these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son, Joseph's son? So they're thinking that. Um, is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Judas is a, is a phrase form of Judah, so it's, much, it's not Judas the bad guy. It's <laughs> Judas was a very popular name, like John. Okay." Um, so he's got brothers and sisters, he's got family, and they show up at periodic times. Now there's kind of like an old story that you know Joseph was an older man, and he had kids, been in their marriage, and these are Jesus' older brothers and sisters. Eh, not so much. It was probably his half brothers and half sisters in these ways, okay? Uh, number three, Mary is not sinless. Uh, and this is another major thing. There's a problem in terms of how we think about sin, and the question is, how is sin transmitted? Traditionally, it's transmitted by Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve do their thing, and then their kids have sin, and their kids' kids have sin, and their kids' kids, and we can go on and on and on and on and on and on. And now you have sin. You're thanks, Adam, right? Thanks a lot. <laughs> thanks, Eve. Good job. Um, and so now we 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 have this inherited idea of sin. And so um, if your sin is passed on biologically from your parents, how is it possible for Jesus to be without sin if he has a human property? And so we had to. Th- there's some math going on. They're like, well. Uh, maybe mary doesn't have sin and so you get some very early stories there's an, there's a group there's a book called the infancy gospel of james which is entertaining reading um, which you can go through some time, you can find online. There's some real weirdness in there, but uh, you can you can read through the Infancy Gospel of James, and they go through the story of Mary's birth, and it's kind of this Elizabeth um, business, and kind of Hannah business, and and Anna's an older woman, and she's not, she's not been able to have a baby, and the angel arrives to her and says, blessed are you, you're going to have a baby, and she says, how is this possible? And there's all these kind of like, this looks very familiar, um, and then her husband comes back, and then nine months later, they have a baby, and it's called now, this is actually formally called the Immaculate Conception. If you've heard that phrase, don't get it confused with the virgin birth. But the Immaculate Conception is the fact, is the belief that Mary was born miraculously sinless. So she doesn't need, she doesn't have sin, and that means that when God does his thing with Mary, whatever that is, um, that she doesn't have sin and doesn't get transmitted onto Jesus. Well, I mean, this is kind of goofy, because how far back do you go on the sinless scale? Like, If I solve that Mary's sinless, do I I need to make Anna sinless as well? And if Anna's, do I have to, like, there's a kind of cascade effect. Um, And then if God can do that, why didn't he do that before? (laughs) Like, what does that, how does that make Jesus' birth special in some way? So there's some some real problems in terms of how we think about that as well. Um, Instead, what we see in the Scriptures is that Mary is just like us is that she is also in need of the gift of God in Christ. So we see some evidence in the scriptures that she really didn't get it while Jesus was around. Um, She and Jesus' brothers, um, they come to him in a different passage, um, not in Matthew, a different passage. They come to him, and they try to take Jesus away from the crowd because they think he's crazy. Like, they don't get what he's doing. And so they're opposed. And what does Jesus say? Who are my mother and brothers but those who do the will of the Father? This is my mother. This is my brother and sister. So he actually publicly rebukes her because she's on the wrong side of what he's doing. So maybe that might be called a sin um, in my book. And we know later that Mary became part of the church. And when she becomes part of the church, we don't actually have um, special reference to reverence to her in that. Uh, We know that she, um, we believe that she was part of Luke's. Like when Luke is traveling around, he interviews people, and we think he interviewed Mary and got some of these early stories. Um, we have reason to believe that because um, we think John finished his life near—not finished his life, but finished his ministry near Ephesus—and because Jesus gave Mary to John to look after her, that Mary probably ended up in Ephesus with John. Um, but when when we're reading letters to Ephesians, we don't see special mention of Mary in these ways. That doesn't mean that Mary's not there; it just means that she's not being reverenced as this kind of ideal, sinless figure in these ways. Uh, so maybe it's an argument from silence, but I still think it, it maybe holds up. Okay, so that was number three. She's not sinless. Number four, Mary does not answer prayers. She doesn't answer your prayers. Uh, and because in history we have Mary as the queen of heaven and as a perpetual virgin and as sinless, a lot of people began to feel like they can pray properly to Mary. Um, hard to get to Jesus. We can, make it, we can get to his mother. The mother can change the mind of the king. And there is a kind of like traditional belief that if you can get to the woman... You can get to the man, sorry. But that's um, just old school, how people looked at the world. It's simply just not true, though. It's simply not true. Um, I have a very, and let me pause and say this, I have an extremely robust view of the communion of saints. I believe those who are dead now are alive in Christ, actually alive in Christ. And I actually think there's more to the communion of saints than we've dealt with. It doesn't mean that they're answering my prayers, though. It doesn't mean that they're the ones who do it. In fact, very explicitly, when Jesus teaches us to pray in Matthew chapter 6, he says, when you pray, you will say, our Father. You've got direct access. This is one of your gifts as a child of God. You have direct access to the throne of God. You have to go through any intermediaries. You don't have to do any special dances. You don't have to sacrifice a sheep every time you want something, or maybe a hog. That would be an abomination. But... um, (laughs) You don't have to do special work. You can get to God this instant right now by speaking to him through his son. And this is, this is the glory of what it means to have faith. And so in that, on, that, on that ground alone, we should reject intermediaries. And there could be devotional intermediaries, people who become models for your faith. I think, you know, I think you should all adopt a patron saint. Not someone you pray to, but someone whose life becomes a model for yours. Your faith can model my faith. I like Origen. I really like him. I mean, he's weird, but I like him. Maybe because maybe because he's weird, I like him. And I like the dead in Christ. They're here. My delight is in the saints who are in the land. I love these people. And you know what? You can have Mary as a patron as well. Doesn't mean you pray to her. And I'm going to talk about why that should be the case in just right now. Mary is, despite all of these, <laughs> despite all of these abuses, Mary is worthy of our reverence, our respect, and our imitation. Mary is worthy of our reverence. We should revere her. And she's worthy of our respect. And she is worthy of our imitation. And I think that each one of us should seek to imitate Mary this Christmas season. Let's talk about this. Let's look again. Luke 148, uh, this end of this 148. um, For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. We want to call Mary blessed. Two reasons for this. One, uh, because she is the first to have Christ in her. Let's think about the double meaning of that. Mary was the first person to have Christ in her, and she had actually Christ in her. Uh, if you've not thought about the word incarnation, it means like "incarnate." in the meat. It's present in bodily. It's amazing. He's in flesh. Uh, John 1:14 makes this um, wonderfully explicit for us. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He, he, he lived in a tent. He lived in a flesh tent. This is actually, the word is tabernacled for this. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and of truth. That happened in Mary's body. And that is unbelievable. I think it's astonishing. So somehow, Mary had an egg. Let's be explicit for a moment. She had an egg that traveled down her fallopian tube at just the right time of the month, and then the Holy Spirit overshadowed her. I don't know what that means. But somehow God produced DNA, the sufficient 50% DNA, that then um, fertilized her egg. And that egg attached itself to her uterine wall. And the process of cellular mitosis began. And it developed a placenta, and there was an umbilical cord that connected the the embryonic Jesus to Mary's body. Mary ate food, and the food was sent into Jesus' body. Whatever she ate for those nine months, that's what Jesus ate. He wasn't miraculously sustained. He was sustained in the normal way. When the infant Jesus produced waste, Mary's body processed and got rid of it. Her blood became his blood. It's just, it's just she processed these things. Her body contained the savior of the universe for these nine months. Then she gave birth to him, and it wasn't like it wasn't probably a quiet, nice birth. It was probably like a standard, uncomfortable birth. Um, and 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 then she suckled him. That a young girl of no consequence, of no importance in the world, held at her breast the god of the universe. And nursed him. This is one of the most astonishing things that's ever happened in the world. That God would humble himself to that point. That's a moment worthy of our reverence and respect. Unbelievable that this goes on. Now there's a mystery within this. And there's another play on words maybe. Is that what was physical in Mary, I'd like to say, is also physical in us. What was physical in Mary is also physical in us. You might be tempted to think that it's spiritual in us, that we have a kind of spiritual appropriation of the Incarnation. But no, I actually think the Incarnation is an in-meeting, like you become the meat of Jesus again. And that somehow in faith, the Holy Spirit also overshadows you and does something to your DNA whereby Christ becomes part of you. And now Christ is in you as Christ was in Mary. Now, not that you're going to give birth to Christ, I thought it was fantastic. Davina is sharing this thing. Davina, you, sorry, here, you were an example and didn't even know it. You are the incarnate Christ in Glasgow right now. And it feels small. And it's not necessarily big and flashy, but no, it was Mary. And you have an obedient job to do to be Christ in that place. And not a spiritual Christ, but to be actually the flesh, the hands, the feet, the heartbeat of Christ in that place. And not just her, but all of you have the exact same responsibility. Because what was physical in Mary is also physical in you. She was the first to have Christ in her, but now you have Christ in you as well. So the Holy Spirit has overshadowed Mary, and now he overshadows us. As well. I have a firm belief that the incarnation of Christ was not a one time event, but continues in you and me. Incarnation is an ongoing event. It is God's real time physical spirit presence in you and me. Let's look at Colossians 1 uh, 24 through 27 briefly. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. It is the risen Christ in you. And keep it part of the body. Okay, that was the number one reason uh, for why Mary is worthy of our reverence, respect, and invitation. She was the first to have Christ in her. Uh, the number two reason is because as a character, she is the first example for faith in the church. She's our first example for what it means to have faith in the church. And there's maybe three ways to look at this. So let's look at Luke 1.38 briefly. Uh, The angel says to her, These things are going to happen. And she says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. So the angel shows up and says to you, "Um, I am going to cause a baby to come out of you. And you're not going to be pregnant. I mean, you're not going to have sex. You're going to have a baby. These things are going to happen. And Mary um, knowingly says, Okay. She doesn't say, okay, she says, whatever you say, may your word be for me. That's unbelievable acceptance. It's an unbelievable faith uh, to be able to say that. And so I see maybe three different ways to look at this. One is that Mary is an example of submission. This is a very submissive heart. And that submissive heart is, if you are going to be like Mary, if you're going to have Mary as your patron saint, especially for this holiday season, then submission to the word of the Lord is the first. She says, may it be to me as your word is said. The Lord says something to you, and you can say, okay, Lord, I'll obey. And you'll be like Mary in that. And her willingness is directly contrasted with Zechariah's confusion. If you remember last week, Jim talked about Zechariah. Zechariah, the angel shows up to him, and Zechariah says, how will I know? And the angel's like, I stand in the presence of God, dummy. (laughs) It's the stupidest question Zechariah could have asked. An angel showed up to you, and you're going to ask him, how will I know? Like, and Mary gets it right. The angel shows up, and she says, okay. Um, and her willingness and her submission become uh, important for us. Second is Mary is an example of formation. Submission and then formation. Uh, she's got nine months with Christ in the womb. Nine months of her body changing, of, of, of her, um, her physique being molded. Um, Christ being knit in her womb, and and I think Christ needs to be similarly knit into our lives. And that formation means an acceptance of discomfort. Um, I'm going to now physically change because God is in me. And that means I'm going to have to get up and move when I don't want to move. And sometimes I'm going to have to be still when I want to move. And it means I'm going to have to eat things I don't want to eat and not eat things I do want to eat and so forth and so on. And I'm going to have to talk to people I don't necessarily like. Um... And I'm have to go across the room sometimes and be obedient, and I'm have to stand up and worship when I want to be quiet, and all sorts of things can go on. We can list and list and list. Uh, but formation is uncomfortable. And there's a willingness to accept that discomfort that is a key part of the process of growing into Christ-likeness. Um, I think our comfort sometimes is one of the key things that keeps us from growing to be more like Christ. I'd be more like Jesus if I weren't so comfortable. Ooh. I think that's hard. Lastly, Mary is an example of patience. There's a lot of waiting from conception to birth. Um, I think one of the things that strikes me, uh, our first our born son, uh, Moses, was, uh, we didn't, we, did, we chose intentionally not to have the, um, not to know his gender before he was born. And so we had two names picked out. And then he came out and it was like, oh boy, it's obvious when you know, they come out. And, uh, <laughs> and oh boy, this is fantastic, it was such a gift. And I, I had a moment's a stunning realization, of course, is that this is way before ultrasounds. So the angel says, uh, you're going to have a baby, it's going to be a boy, you're going to name him Jesus. And maybe in some little part, recess of her mind, until that baby came out, she didn't know. She couldn't know that it had been a boy. And there's a, there's a kind of lurking faith there. There's a lot of patience, a lot of waiting to see what God's actually doing. But this patience is also the fulfillment of prophecy, the long fulfillment, the waiting. It's an attitude of endurance while the slow, steady Christ work is accomplished in our hearts and our flesh. Um, before we pray, I just want to leave you with, um, with a specific encouragement as I was listening to our worship and I wrote these words down, is that I want you to, um, I want you to be aware of the small obedience. But Mary says a very small obedience. This is not flashy. Saying okay to God isn't terribly flashy. And some of you may have a hunger for great things in faith. Some of you have, may have a hunger to be, for the Lord to speak through you powerfully. You might want to do things for God. You might want vision and passion for your life. And God's word to you may be, I want you to stand up, go across the room, and speak to that stranger. And that's a very small obedience But if you say no to the small obedience, you're going to have a hard time with the big obedience. And so where those places are in your life, where the Lord has been niggling you to do something, I want to encourage you this morning to begin to say, okay, may it be to me according to your word. And in that moment, that's the faith that Mary has. The first faith of the church who says yes to God and then becomes the flesh of Jesus and does the work of God towards one another. So in a moment, uh, we're going to worship. And you're going to have some chances for prayer. And uh, anything going on in your life, come, come get prayer. Doesn't, doesn't, if, if you slept through this entire thing and you woke up now and you're like, I need prayer, come for prayer. <laughs> right? <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> Um, the, Lord, the Lord meets us in prayer, and one of the things he loves to do is he loves to talk to us through other people. He just loves it. And if you, you are going to hear God a lot less if you're just on your own. You'll hear him t- quite a bit more um, if you get together with other people. So um, come when that time comes. Maybe you, need, maybe you want a submissive heart. Maybe you want to be the patience to be formed properly in Christ. Who knows? Maybe there's a still small voice in your heart. But let me, let me pray for you first. Lord Jesus Christ, I, I don't know how to thank you for your humility because I don't even know that I can comprehend the humility that allows itself to be born um, in the body of a young girl. I, I, can't, I can't wrap my head around it. And in some ways, I'm just grateful that I can't wrap my head around it. But I thank you for who you are and for what you've done for us. I pray as we as we prepare for this particular Advent season, as we're in the midst of this Advent season, that we will remember the miracle of your birth. And I pray that as we see images of Mary, and as we see Crashes, and as we watch our Christmas films, and as we, as, we hear the Easter, as we hear the Christmas story again and again, that we will be challenged for these small obediences in faith. So work through us powerfully this morning and for the rest of especially this season. In your name we pray. Amen.